If you're able, would you remain standing for a moment longer and turn to Revelation chapter 19. We are finishing our Advent series today uh, with uh, Revelation 19, which you might think there's nothing to do with uh, the Advent, and uh, I, I beg to differ. It has everything to do with the Advent, the second Advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to read verses 1 through 16 of Revelation chapter 19. This is the word of our Lord. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in, the, in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. O glorious God, we pray that you would open our eyes to see amazing things concerning Jesus from this passage. In whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Revelation 19 is a series of songs that are sung in heaven that will conclude our series of Advent messages. We started with the song of Mary uh, when she went to visit Elizabeth. Then we went to the song of Zacharias when he, John the Baptist was finally born and he was able to speak again. Last week we considered the song of the angels in heaven at the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, we're going to go back to heaven today as we consider the songs of the powers in heaven 
singing concerning the Lord Jesus Christ as we bring this whole series on the Advent to a conclusion as we think about the second coming of Jesus Christ. What we read here are songs. The quotation mark, most of them are songs. And uh, they're very different than the songs that the church sings today, aren't they? Our sensitivity has changed. Uh, we are not singing about, praise the Lord for He killed all His enemies and they're all bloody, they're burned to the ground. Hallelujah. That doesn't tend to be the content of our songs. Uh, we sometimes sing the psalms and we struggle with the psalms because of the earthiness and the reality of how, uh, how, how God, through the psalmist, expresses Himself. Now, if you ever feel like that, singing the songs of the Bible, uh, just know that the problem is not with the songs. The problem is with you, that uh, your sensitivity is too high. We've sterilized our songs, right? Uh, we are now content of singing just uh, songs that we could sing to our girlfriends. Like Jesus as my boyfriend or Jesus as my girlfriend seems to be the way that songs go. Uh, the uh, little device that allows us to play music to our radio in the car was missing today. So we came to church listening to K-Love 104.5, I think is the, uh, the station there. And yeah, it's not like Revelation 19. <laughs> I'll tell you the truth. And uh, God is triumphant, and His church has to sing triumphantly as well as we consider the truth that our King, our, our Savior, is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And as one of our members reminded me recently, uh, the church often gets so enraptured in a nativity story during Christmas that it fails to communicate to all the connection between the birthday of this holy child and the mission of Jesus Christ. We have not only sterilized our singing, we've sterilized the Christmas story. We consider it as this neat little story about this baby and little shepherds and three kings who aren't there, by the way, but in all our little manger scenes, they have all that really angelic view and idyllic view, and it's the furthest thing from the truth. Why did Jesus come? Christ was born to die. That was his mission. Uh, in the Song of Simeon, one of the songs that we didn't consider this time, one of the things that Simeon sings to Mary is that her heart is going to be pierced with a sword, not literally, but figuratively because of the suffering of her son. And you know, when a parent see, uh, sees a child suffering, he or she also suffers with that child. So Christ came to die. We often leave those around us asking what the big deal is about the birth of a baby in a dusty and forsaken part of the world. Why is that important? Why is it something that we should we celebrate? Now we, we neglect to herald the mission field message of the angel to the shepherd. Remember what the shepherd the angels told the shepherds? For there is born to you this day what? A savior who is Christ the Lord. Well, the point of the nativity story is that God became human and dwelt among us. He came with a mission. He was to grow up and obey every aspect of God's law perfectly so that perfect, active obedience could be credited to those whom He represented. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, He represented you in that life. He was also to die the death of a sinner. 
not for his own sin, for he was perfect, but a ransom for the sins of all those who have faith in him. So part of his mission was to secure the righteousness that we needed in order to be declared righteous by God and to take upon himself the punishment from God that was justly ours. That's why that baby was born. To suffer for you. To die for you. And there was more to his mission, however. He came to grow up, to obey, to die, and to come back to life. At his resurrection, he was crowned king of heaven and earth. He came to become a king. So the apostle says, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ was exalted at His resurrection. He was given a name. Do you see the, the name thing going on here for, between Philippians 2, which I just read to you, and Revelation 19, where He's given also a name that only He, he knows, and yet the, the, the Apostle John tells us what that name is in Revelation 19, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, the last part of his mission, and the, the part that we're going to consider today, is that he is coming back to rule over his creation bodily and to receive his church triumphant to himself. He is going to do that, and that is our hope. The Apostle Paul tell, calls it the blessed hope. The blessed hope of the resurrection in the coming of Jesus Christ. It is about this part of the mission that Revelation 19 and the song of the 24 elders in heaven is all about. And that's what we're going to be considering now. Because we live in this space. We live between the space between Christ coming to save His people and Christ coming again to receive His people and to judge the world. There's this tension in which we live in between what Christ has already accomplished and what He's going to fulfill at the end at His coming again. So we, we are in this tension and that's where we live and we live looking back to what Christ has done for us in His birth, life, death and resurrection and looking forward to what Christ is going to do for us in redeeming our bodies. We, we too often think that all we are is spiritual beings entrapped in these bodies, but we're not. We are body and soul and it's forever that we're going to live as body and souls in the presence of God. We're going to experience Christ physically with our eyes, with our ears, with our mouths, we're going to forever live as body and souls before Him. And that's what the second coming reminds us of. And as we think about living in this time between the first and the second advent, let us compare these two comings of Christ. Now, He first came as a baby in a manger. He will come again as the mighty King. Look at verse 12 of Revelation 19. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. Who were many crowns? It is a king who conquered all the other kings. 
And they took all the crowns. Remember the story in 2 Samuel where David is getting a little lazy, so he stays behind. And Joab goes and conquers the city. And he's about to enter the city. The victory is certain. Joab say, hey, David, you need to come over here because otherwise they're going to give the crown to me. You need to come and get the crown of the city. The conquering king wears all the conquered king's crowns. And our Lord is described here as the one who wears many crowns. As a matter of fact, we're going to see in a moment, all the crowns of all the kings of this world belong to Jesus Christ because his birth, life, death, and resurrection. He first came as the Lamb of God. Remember when John the Baptist saw him on that day on the shores of the Jordan River? And he looked up and he said, Behold, what? The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But when he comes back, he comes back as the Lion of Judah. Look at the description of him in verses 11 through 16. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flaming a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew it except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies... The armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. No longer lamb, is it? Now, there's only three really descriptions about the appearance of Jesus Christ in the Bible. One is in Isaiah 53, which says he was average. And the description we have in Isaiah 53 is that Jesus was in the crowd. You couldn't figure out who he was. He was just the common, everyday man. The other two are in the book of Revelation. One is in chapter 1, and the other one is here in chapter 19. Neither of those two places in Revelation, you see this little blonde, blue-eyed, uh, effeminize Jesus that we so often see in pictures. You see this fierce king who is coming as the Lion of Judah. And this connection between the Lamb and the, the Lion is made earlier on in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, where John looks to heaven, and heaven is crying because they were handed, they were handed this scroll that nobody can open. But all of a sudden, the elders say, but wait, there is one who can open the scrolls, the Lion of Judah. And John looks back, and on the throne he sees what? He sees the Lamb. It was slain before the foundation of the world. So our Savior first came as a lamb, but he's coming back as the lion of Judah with all power, all glory, all honor to tread the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. Our Lord first came as gentle and lowly. We're studying all about that uh, in our book study. But he's coming back as the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Again, verse 16, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I had to sit through a chapel uh, where a youth pastor came to some middle schoolers and he chose to speak on this verse. And he said that this verse was all about how right it is to get tattoos. Because Jesus had a tat on his thigh. That's the the foolishest, 
most foolish thing you can ever say. I hope that guy never gets behind a pulpit again ever in his life. Because that's not what this verse is about. This is our king who is coming back for us with all heaven declaring his glory. To be the king of kings and the Lord of lords for all eternity. Our Savior first came to be despised and rejected by the very people He came to save. But He's coming back in the fullness of being Lord God Omnipotent. Look at verse 6. And I heard it were the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God Omnipotent reigns. The Lord God All-Powerful reigns. Remember uh, one of our favorite hymns, uh, It Is Well With My Soul, verse 3 says, uh, My sin, oh the bliss of that glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. But remember what verse 3 transitions into in verse 4? The, the knowledge of forgiven sins, what does it cause the uh, Horatius Spafford, the author, to do? What is that verse 4 tells us? Come, right? Uh, the clouds being rolled back as a scroll, the trumpet sounding, and the Lord coming uh, for us. We can hope in that because He is the God Almighty. He is a God who he rules over all things. Our Savior first came to save. Remember in John chapter 3, He's speaking and says, You know, I didn't come to condemn the world because the world already did a good job of condemning itself. I came to save. But when He comes back, He'll come to judge the world. Look at verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God. Let me read that last little part on the ESV because I think it does a better job. It says, He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. When Christ comes back, that's it. There's no more salvation. The only thing left is judgment. And look at how he describes as the treading of the wine press. In ancient times, you know, you put all the grapes in a vet or in a, the bottom of a millstone and you step on it till all the grape was crushed and the wine would run over. Jesus says that's a picture of what he's going to be doing with those that are not his. And it's not just the fury of God, it's the fury of the wrath of God. So if fury wasn't enough, is the fury of the wrath. Is the infinite wrath of God being poured upon those who didn't believe in Jesus Christ. And you might think, oh yeah, there's some really bad people that need that. And they deserve that. And usually when you say that, you think of Hitler or Mao Zedong. Or whoever. But these people that are going to receive the wrath of God is not just the really bad people. It's nice Uncle Joe. It is nice neighbor Bob. It is you know, the friend Janie who did not believe in Jesus Christ. And our, our Lord may come tomorrow. Do you get that? Our Lord may come tomorrow. Do you have that sense of urgency to know that the unbelieving people in your life will be crushed by Jesus Christ as His coming? Or does it matter to you? Does it matter to you? Does it matter that there are people in your life that unless the God intervenes, unless 
you bring the word of God to them, they will be crushed by the coming of Jesus Christ. Is that urgency in, in us? Yeah, does that Miles that said no? Somebody said no, and I think they may be correct on that. Our, our Savior first came to die, but He's coming again to reign. Look at verse 12. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on His head were many crowns. On His head are many crowns. The crown of heaven is on His head. Look at verses 4 through 6. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne of heaven, uh, of the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants and those who fear Him, both small and great. The crown of heaven is on the Lord Jesus Christ. As we read in our call to worship in Hebrews 2, 9, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. The heavens is the dominion of God, but the heavens is also the dominion of Jesus Christ. But that's not the only crown he wears. He also wears the crown of earth is, is on his head. Again, verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that it, with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He is going to rule the earth with a rod of iron. In chapter 11, uh, we have there the angels singing in heaven that the... Kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. The crown of earth is upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We think of powerful leaders. We think of Trump and Biden and Putin and Merkel and Johnson in Great Britain. We think of whatever powerful leaders are there, and we think they are the ones that rule over everything that's going on, and they think they are the ones that rule over everything that's going on, but it is Jesus who is ruling over every kingdom of this earth. The book of Proverbs says that the hearts of the king, presidents, and governors is in the hand of God, and he turns them so easily with no effort like you turn water. There's no resistance. The crown of earth is upon the Lord Jesus Christ, but not only the crown of heaven, the crown of earth, the crown of principalities and powers is on his head. Look at verse 14. And the armies of, in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. The armies of heaven followed him. Do you know what was God's favorite title in the Old Testament? Yahweh Sabaoth. The Lord of Armies. God's favorite title for himself in the Old Testament is the general. The troops of heaven follow him. And guess, guess who is leading the troops here in Revelation 19? The Lord Jesus himself. Everything's on his own. Angels and dem- demons alike. No one can frustrate his plans and his reign. God the Father has exalted him above everything and everyone. God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. The crown of principalities and powers is on his head. And the crown of the church is on his head. Look at verses 7 through 9. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in the fine linen, clean and bright, for 
The fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Our Lord rules over his church. He's the king of his church. And his coming back is equated with a marriage feast. He is our husband. This has been prophesied long ago in the book of Joel, chapter 2. Joel 2 is one of those chapters that uh, Joel keeps on going back between the first coming and the second coming. But in Joel 2, 15 and 16, where he's clearly speaking about the second coming, Joel says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out from this chamber and the bride from her dressing room. We read in Revelation 19, the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, when the marriage of the son and his church will be consummated, and he's coming for us. The apostle John marveled at such great demonstration of God's love for us in marrying his son to us. When he says, Behold, what man of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we shall be called children of God. For we will see him as he is, for we will be like him. Church of Jesus Christ, Christ is your king. Jesus is your king. He's the most loving and benevolent king. He bestows his blessing upon you. Christ is your husband king. Know all those things you read in Ephesians 5, starting verse 25 for the end. All those things that we miserably fail often upon. Christ perfectly does that. He nourishes you. He cherishes you. He builds you up. He cleanses you. And he will going to present you pure to himself. He gives of himself for you. All these things being true about the coming of the Lord, how should you respond to all of this? How should you respond to the fact that Christ is coming again and he is the Lord of lords and King of kings? Well, the saints in heaven give us a clue about our response. In verse 6, it tells us that great joy should arise from knowing that Christ reigns. In verse 6, as I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. So let us be glad and be rejoice and give him glory. Why? Because he reigns. The fact that Christ reigns should elicit glory or joy in our hearts. Notice that not because there's things in our lives that are being changed. Notice that's not because things are going perfectly, but because He reigns, we have joy. The saints also in heaven, in verse 5, respond to this truth with fear, reverence, awe, and praise. All that should be mixed together in our hearts. Verse 5, Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all of you saints, and those who fear Him, both small and great. A deep-seated realization that we are the blessed ones of God, regardless of circumstances, should be govern our emotions. In verse 9, it says, Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Who is the blessed? The one who is invited to be with Christ. There's nothing to do how your life is going. Your life might stink. But as a Christian, the Bible describes you as the blessed. The problem is that we bought into the foolish garbage that Joel Osteen has to sell us. That this is supposed to be our best life. That somehow, if everything is not perfect here, God is not blessing us. When God has never promised you that, God promised you eternity with Him. God promised you that your best life is going to be the life to come. 
And if you are included in that, you are blessed. It doesn't matter how miserable your life is here. Can you see how that can be helpful as you go through uh, daily lives? That this is not all that there is. There's actually a better life for us. And that the coming of Jesus Christ will be perfect with Him forever. With nothing that, it dis- that disturbs us now affecting us. But Jesus also tells us what our response should be. He wants us to take upon ourselves His yoke. I remember a while ago I spoke about the yoke, and at the end a young, a young kid in the church asked me, why is the yellow part of the egg so important? <laughs> <laughs> that was an extra natural conversation uh, that uh, took place. That's not the yoke I'm talking about. The yoke was that peace that will go on the back of the oxen, usually the oxen, they'll keep them together, and that implements could be attached to it. It could be a, 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 a plow, could be a cart, could be just ropes to, to drag a rock off the field. It just was something that the animals would respond to the guidance of their master. And Jesus, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, wants us to put his yoke upon ourselves. In Matthew 18, he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And taking the yoke means to become a servant, to become a tool to be used by the one who has the reins to the yoke. Uh, you've heard uh, the, the, the little saying, and people usually joke, and there's even a meme about it, Jesus take the wheel. A more biblical meme would be Jesus takes the reins. The reins of thy, our yoke. We are yoked to Christ. And He controls us. So taking Jesus' yoke upon ourselves involves giving the reins of our hearts to Jesus. And this is true of our salvation when we first come to faith in Christ, but it's also true of all of our lives as we are under the yoke of Jesus Christ. The reins of our marriages are in the hands of Jesus Christ. The reins of our singleness are in the the hands of Jesus Christ. The reins of our relationships are in the hands of Jesus Christ. The reins of our worship are in the, the the hands of Jesus Christ. All of life in submission to Jesus Christ. That's what it means that Christ is coming back for you. That your life now... It's lived according to that thought that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Because you have bowed your knee to Him by His grace. You've bowed your knee to the gentle and lowly Savior. The thing is, though, every knee will bow at His coming. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2 that every knee will bow on heaven above, on earth, below the earth. Paul covers everywhere. There's not going to be a place where they're not bowing to Jesus Christ. If, you've bowed, if you have bowed by faith, you've bowed the knee willingly to the gentle and lowly. If you wait till His coming, you're going to bow your knees under the sheer pressure of His wrath upon your shoulders, squishing you down to your knees, and you're going to be a slave of His wrath forever. That's the impact of thinking of His second coming, His second event on us. We live yoked Christ, the reins of our lives in His hands. And then this brings the Advent season to its full meaning. God the Son became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived among us a perfect life in obedience to God. 
on behalf of his people. He died a sinner's death so that his people could have life. He came back to life and he reigns over the world through his church and he's coming again as the King of kings and the Lord of all lords for his church and to judge the world. Praise be to God for the fullness of the nativity story. Let us pray together. Father, thank you that you're a good God who gave us Jesus Christ. We pray that all of us would willingly bow our knees to Jesus Christ, take upon us the yoke that's easy and not burdensome, enable us to come in subjection in everyday life to the gentle and lowly Savior who lived, died, and came back to life for us. In whose name we pray, amen.